0: and Answers. Terrorism. It's been in the news almost daily. The world that we live in is constantly barraged with evil. There truly is a battle against terrorism. So what do we know about these forces of wickedness? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukren. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will be sharing about terrorism and the different groups that choose to bring about evil to our society. If you are unable to hear this entire broadcast, All of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org.
1: Here's Pat now with part one. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, from the bombings in Manchester to the attack at the London Bridge to the attacks in the Philippines, you are hearing about terrorism every day. A lot of terrorist groups are mentioned in the news But who are these terrorist groups and what is their goal? And how do we defeat terrorism? Today on Evidence and Answers, we'll talk about terrorism, give you a brief overview of the major organizations and a strategy to defeat terrorism. But first, let me explain the difference between terrorism and the just use of force. There is a cliché out there that states, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. In other words, the use of force really depends on one's perspective. Is this really the case? Well, first, let's take a look at the principles of just war versus terrorism. We've done several previous shows on just war and terrorism here at Evidence and Answers. So you can look at previous shows and listen to my interviews with experts in this area on just war versus terrorism. So let me just briefly go over... Saint Augustine's principles of just war this was developed by the great theologian and philosopher of the fourth century Saint Augustine whose principles of just war are still used today to guide nations in the just use of force now there's seven principles of just war stated by Saint Augustine let me go over them briefly first there must be a just cause to protect a nation and her allies. So there's a just cause. They have been invaded and these are defensive battles, right, to prevent more attacks or to stop an attack that's occurring on that country's soil. Second, there must be just intention. The intention is to use force to bring about peace, right? To defeat an aggressive enemy. Third, the use of force is the last resort. When negotiations, boycotts, and embargoes have all failed, this is the last resort and the threat is very imminent and dangerous. Fourth, there must be a formal declaration of war between the governments of the nations that allows the civilians time to get out of the possible battle zones that are coming and an opportunity for the aggressor to surrender. Fifth, there must be limited objectives in other words military targets only and we try to limit civilian casualties and we're using just enough force to win but we don't want the complete destruction of an entire nation six proportionate means in other words we go after military targets and we use enough force to win we're not out there to decimate cities and destroy Complete nations and civilizations. And seventh, non combatant immunity. In other words, we do the best that we can to limit civilian casualties and target military targets only. Now, those are some of the principles of just war or the just use of force. Now, terrorism takes those just war principles and turns them completely upside down. In just war, there's a just cause to protect. In terrorism, The purpose is to strike terror. In a just war, there must be a just intention to bring about peace. In terrorism, the intention is to bring about fear. In just war, the use of force is the last resort. However, in terrorism, it's the first resort. Strike first, then make your demands. Fourth, in just war, there's a formal declaration given As the last and final warning between governments, in terrorism, surprise is the key. Strike first, then make your demands. So surprise is the key. There is no declaration of war or no warning given. Surprise is the key here. Fifth, in just war, there's limited objectives. You try to restrict the use of force on military targets and military combatants. And use just enough force to try and limit civilian casualties and bring about victory in terrorism it's the destruction of a nation or civilization six in just war we use proportionate means all right just enough to take out the military target in terrorism it's the largest amount of damage possible seventh in just war there's non-combatant immunity the United States and several other of our allies spend billions of dollars to create things like laser-guided missiles and military weapons that will precisely hit their particular target and limit non-combatant immunity however in terrorism civilians are the target so you can see there's a stark difference between just war And terrorism and you can see in these terrorist organizations for example the bombing in Manchester at the Ariana Grande concert the target was these young children and civilians it wasn't a military target it was a concert and a lot of young girls were there and that was the target the attack on the London Bridge that was upon civilians and that was not a military target the Boston Marathon bombing, civilians were the target. Hey, that was not a military target there. No formal declaration of war was given. No opportunity to surrender in any of these were given. They were seeking the largest destruction to the most people possible with the intent to strike terror. And so you see, in a lot of battles we see going on in the Middle East, terrorists are firing From apartments and condominiums and schools using civilians as shields and the United States and her allies are doing the best they can to limit civilian casualties and take out these terrorist targets now in terrorism they are military combatants they do not have the civil rights of United States citizens and often you cannot bring them to justice in other words you have to bring justice to them so you need to strike them where they are at and countries that harbor terrorists must be considered enemy nations and warnings given that we will go in there and take out these terrorist organizations if the country itself is unwilling or unable to do so so I hope you see there's a big difference between the principles of just war, the just use of force, and terrorism. Now, let me give you a brief overview of the major terrorist organizations that you're hearing about in the world today. According to the U.S. State Department, there are over 70 recognized terrorist organizations. So let me just go over a few of the major ones that we're hearing a lot about in the news today. The first group and one of the oldest and one of the groups that has spawned other terror groups is the Wahhabi. They were founded by a man named Muhammad al-Wahhab who lived from 1703 to 1792. Now he started a reform movement in Islam to restore the pure worship and practice of Islamic law. He felt that the majority of the Islamic world especially after European colonial conquests had adopted a liberal form of Islam to appease the West and were becoming more and more westernized. And as a result, they were moving away from the strict application of Muhammad's teachings and Sharia law. And so he began in a remote region there in Saudi Arabia, and he formed an alliance with a local leader named Muhammad bin Saud, promising that his sect would teach political obedience to the ruler of the land, and by protecting wahhabism allah would bless that political leader with power and glory so the house of Saud allied with the wahhabi and conquered the arabian peninsula and the house of Saud created the kingdom of saudi arabia in 1932 and has ruled saudi arabia till the present time and its present king is king salman well today al-Wahhab's teachings and Wahhabism are the official state-sponsored form of Sunni Islam in Saudi Arabia. So with the help of funding from Saudi petroleum exports and other factors, the movement underwent explosive growth especially beginning in the 1970s and now has worldwide influence. The U.S. State Department has estimated that over the past four decades, the capital, Riyadh, of Saudi Arabia has invested more than $10 billion in charitable foundations in an attempt to replace mainstream Sunni Islam with Wahhabism. And today there are an estimated 5 million followers of Wahhabi teaching. Now the basic doctrine of the Wahhabi is this. It's an, it began as an Islamic reform movement to restore pure monotheistic worship and to restore Sharia law to the land and establish an Islamic caliphate. So that is the goal of Wahhabism, to restore the pure worship of Islam and a more literal interpretation of the Quran and the application of Sharia law to society. Now many in the Sunni world strongly disagree with the interpretation of Wahhabism and many Muslims denounce them. However, the Wahhabi believe that they are restoring the teachings of Muhammad, the pure worship of Allah. And so the Wahhabi view that they are indeed the reform movement restoring Islam and those who do not follow their beliefs are apostates of Islam. And of course, the punishment for apostates according to the Quran in Islam is death. That's why you may be wondering why some of these groups will also strike against other Islamic groups? Well, because they view them as apostate form of Islam. And apostates, according to the Quran, the punishment for apostasy is indeed death. So the Wahhabi have destroyed historic shrines of Islamic saints, mausoleums, and other Muslim buildings and sanctuaries because they view other forms of Islam that don't agree with them as too liberal or apostate forms of Islam so Wahhabism is the official state-sponsored form of Sunni Islam in Saudi Arabia and 11 of the terrorists who flew the planes on 9-11 come from Saudi Arabia and many terrorists are coming out of Saudi Arabia so that's one of the reasons why this is the official state-sponsored form of Islam there in Saudi Arabia so it was a courageous thing that President Trump did on June 6 of 2017 to go to Saudi Arabia and exhort the 50 Muslim nations there to stand against radical Islam in fact he said to chase them out of their mosques and out of their country and he exhorted them to stand against radical Islam to do that there in Saudi Arabia. It's something that needed to be said by our presidents a long time ago. So we commend him for making that speech there in Saudi Arabia. Now we start with the Wahhabi because many other terrorist groups come out from this Wahhabi movement. Now the next one we're talking about is one you've heard of a lot, Al-Qaeda, which means the base And this is a militant Sunni Islamist multinational organization founded in 1988 by Osama bin Laden and several other Arab volunteers who fought against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s. Now, as a teenager, bin Laden joined the ultra conservative Wahhabi sect of Islam there in Saudi Arabia and served with the police enforcing sharia law there in saudi arabia now during the 1980s bin laden fought alongside the mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union and after the Soviets withdrew he went home to Saudi Arabia Now his central lament was the presence of the US forces there in Saudi Arabia Or the occupation of the land of the two holiest sites occupied by the infidels you have a strong United States presence there in Saudi Arabia and in Saudi Arabia of course that's home to Mecca perhaps the holiest site in all of Islam and you also have the United States and her close ally in the land of Palestine or Israel which is home to perhaps the third holiest mosque in all of Islam the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa mosque and so He was angered by the presence of the infidels there in those places. Now, following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 by the United States, bin Laden offered to defend Saudi Arabia with his men. But the Saudi royals decided that the U.S. military would be a far better bet. So six years later, the American soldiers were still in Saudi Arabia attempting to repel and contain Saddam Hussein. Bin Laden saw the United States as the power behind the throne of Saudi Arabia. The far enemy that propped up the apostate regimes in the Middle East is what he believed. So he wrote to Muslims around the world. He said that they should abandon their petty local fights and unite to drive the Americans out of Saudi Arabia. Destroying, fighting and killing the enemy until by the grace of Allah, it is completely defeated. So that's what he called on Muslims around the world to do. And he was angered by the Saudi royal family making this kind of alliance with the infidel United States. Well, the Saudi royal family opposed Saddam Hussein, so he moved to Sudan. Then eventually he returned to Afghanistan in 1996. And there he formed an alliance with the Taliban. So within a few months of his arrival there in Afghanistan, he issued a 30-page fatwa, the declaration of war against the Americans, occupying the land of the two holy places. And he called for a global jihad against the United States. Well, Saddam Hussein was killed in 2011, and since then, the group has been led by an Egyptian named Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now, The basic beliefs of Al Qaeda is this, once again they are a reform movement. They believe that there is a Christian-Jewish alliance that is conspiring to destroy Islam. Al Qaeda opposes what it regards as the man-made laws and wants to replace them with the strict form of Sharia. They are again another reform movement that has seen much of the Islamic world compromising with the West. And they want to return to the strict literal interpretation of the Quran, the teachings and example of Muhammad and Sharia law established in Islamic lands. So Al-Qaeda sees Muslims that disagree with their movement as liberal Muslims, but they also see the Shiites, the Sufis and other sects as heretics and apostates. And therefore, the Quran calls for the death penalty for heretics and apostates. And so Al-Qaeda has attacked their mosques and their gatherings as well. So you have the Wahhabi movement, which began in the 1700s. And coming out of the Wahhabi movement is Al-Qaeda. And coming out of Al-Qaeda is the group ISIS, once called the JV team of Al-Qaeda by President Obama, they have become the most feared terrorist group in the world today. So ISIS today constitutes a threat to the U.S. that is greater than that of Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, and all other jihad groups. Its success has already been far greater than that of any other terrorist group that has existed. The Islamic State has become the first jihad terror group to rule over a significant expanse of territory for any extended period. Now, ISIS, they are a Sunni Islamic group who consider Shiites as heretics. And ISIS, of course, stands for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. They are also known as ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. The Levant is an old term referring to countries of the eastern Mediterranean. Basically, the Levant has throughout history meant Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. This means uh, Jordan, and the West Bank, the parts that are now under Israeli occupation. So Israel itself is part of what is known as the Levant. It is estimated that there may be as much as 8 million followers in ISIS, and there are several branches associated or allied with ISIS throughout the world. Now, ISIS originated in 1999 as a part of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi he was killed in 2006 and the leadership then went to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi now originally they were an al-Qaeda affiliate but there was a power struggle with al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri and al-Qaeda cut all ties with ISIS so al-Qaeda of Iraq began expanding its territory into Syria during the conflict that arose during the Arab Spring there in 2011 In 2013, al-Baghdadi renamed the group ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. In 2014, al-Baghdadi entered the Great Mosque of al-Nuri in Mosul, Iraq, and he claimed the title of Caliph, the leader of Islam, and called for the allegiance of all Muslims around the world. So since his claim muslims from around the world have been joining isis in an unprecedented pace followers seem to number around 8 million they do a lot of recruiting through the internet so they have a very strong internet presence from which they are able to recruit a lot of young followers now what accounts for the tremendous success of this group isis well one of the reasons is the anticipated restoration of the Islamic Caliphate. It is believed that the Islamic State's rapid success would never have been possible without its claim to reconstitute the Caliphate, a claim that is proven to be extraordinarily potent among Muslims worldwide. In June 29th of 2014, al-Baghdadi claimed the title of Caliph and called for the allegiance of Muslims around the world. The establishment of the Caliphate The leader who will lead Islam against the armies of the West was a long-sought dream of jihadists worldwide and his claim to the caliphate and with his military success that he was having excited jihadists all over the world. Also with the toppling of Saddam Hussein and the quick withdrawal of U.S. troops, it left an unprepared Iraqi army to defend its nation there. And in 2011, it opened the door for ISIS then to fill that power void. Another reason for its success is the massive funding ISIS is able to attain. They were able to capture a lot of military equipment from U.S. armed Iraqi army, which was ill-prepared to defend itself against such a force. For example, just at Mosul, in that city there in Iraq, ISIS is reported to have taken 2,300 Humvees provided by the Americans. They're also able to establish a lot of steady income from the capture and sale of oil fields there in Iraq. The research group Enigma estimated that in 2014, ISIS reaped $1 million per day from their sale of oil from the captured oil fields there in Iraq. It has also been estimated that many wealthy donors have been providing millions of dollars to ISIS. It is estimated that in 2013 and 2014, they received $40 million in donations, not only from rich individual donors, but even from government sources in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Kuwait. Another great source of income for ISIS comes from their kidnappings and abductions. The Treasury Department estimates that in 2014 alone, the Islamic State took in $20 million in ransom payments. It is estimated that ransoms make up as much as 20% of the Islamic State's revenue per year. Now, ISIS is an apocalyptic organization, so in order to understand what motivates them, you need to understand a little bit of their eschatology or their understanding of the end times.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence & Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.